High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Danny Healy Ray has insisted that a dip in the Kerry Road, which has been repaired, and then it comes back again, is due to the presence of fairy forts. Uh, I actually think uh, Danny Healy Ray is more in touch with Irish people than most of the guys inside in Dolairn who talk horse manure on a near daily basis. Uh, I think there's a reasonable possibility. It's about as possible that fairies are creating dips in Kerry roads as uh, that you can have economic activity in the centre of Dublin um, without any traffic. Anyway, we'll wait and see whether Councillor, whatever his name is from the Green Party, uh, Kieran Coff, whether Councillor Kieran Coff or Denny Healy Ray are right. Now, in British universities, it, they, the kids find it very difficult to do exams and they get all stressed out and they have a special room and they go in and they pat the dog and then they can go in and do the exam. Now, incredibly, British universities are facing a raft of legal actions from students who are blaming the university for not letting them skip exams, or indeed if they do skip exams, uh, they're blaming the university for losing a year's work and they want uh, that income paid to them. It is unbelievable now what uh, these snowflakes at universities think a university life is to be all about. I'd like to ask you a question, though. There's a company owned by a millionaire in Britain called Mike Ashley. It's called Sports Direct. Now, he has issued a directive to employees that uh, English is the language of the company and people who work there should speak in English. And he's coming under enormous stick. They're actually suggesting that, again, he might be sued. Now, this is the whole purpose. When when they offended God and he, he invented the Tower of Babel, do you remember that? And they couldn't build the tower because they were all speaking in different languages. Now, that was biblical. This is reality in 2017, that people actually think you can run a business with everybody carrying on, gabbling away in their own particular language that nobody else understands. Who would have thought that the biblical Tower of um, Babel would return in 2017 uh, Britain? And... uh, the uh, uh, Sean says, George, the fairies are great for keeping you in the news. Well done, Danny Healy, right? says Sean. And uh, George, when you think about it, Frank McNamara says, Healy Ray's father topped the pole several times. His brother Michael topped the pole. He even got elected himself. Of course he believes in fairies. Well, I think if you have that kind of political success generational and topping the pole, which politicians would would die for. The Healy Rays must have something going for them. But finally, I've been very critical of Antishak in recent weeks, in fact, since his appointment. But when the British object to him, 
I'm on the Taoiseach's side because former British government uh, Brexit minister David Jones uh, has expressed concern that Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has taken a different approach to his predecessor Andy Kenny on the issue of Brexit. And why shouldn't he? I mean, Endis' form was, you know, slap people on the back and say, how are you lads? Be all right and they're nice. We do it the way we do it up in Castle Bar. Varadkar is now facing up to the crisis that is Brexit. Apparently, businesses on the in the border regions, 98% of them are unprepared for Brexit. So well done, Taoiseach. A wake-up call is what we need. Now... I'm joined on the telephone by economist Jim Power because the lost decade is over. Jim Power, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. I see you you economists now are going into the PR business and manufacturing sort of marketing phrases instead of hardline economics. Are are we, George? Uh, Tell me about it. Well, what's this? The the last decade is over. What kind of BS is that? Well, you should probably have spoken to the author of that, that's Dermot O'Leary and Good Body Stockbrokers. I didn't invent it. Uh, But Ah, but all you economists are joined at the hip. Be God we're not, George, no. Well, go on. Um, Do you agree with this? I can certainly assure you we're not. Do you agree with this? We rarely communicate with each other. Well, I agree if you look at key metrics like employment, unemployment, GDP, all of those things, certainly um, Ireland is very close to where it was prior to the crash. Actually, GDP is now bigger, but the unemployment rate is moving back to where it was. Employment levels still have a little bit to go, but they are moving in the right direction. So in terms of those metrics, yeah, you can certainly say that the we're back to where we were at the beginning of the decade. Um, so that that's good news, I suppose, in many ways. However, um, I think it is really important to recognize that there are still serious legacy issues from that lost decade that will take quite some time to work through. Uh, the housing situation is the most obvious one, but we also see a lot of our public services like health education under serious pressure after serious cutbacks in funding during that fiscal crisis. Uh, broadband infrastructure has been highlighted by ISME today, for example, as a major shortcoming in the economy. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, and we also have a lot of people's personal finances are still you know, pretty imbalanced. Uh, there's a lot of debt out there in the system still. So I, I, I wouldn't get carried away with the end of the last decade. Um, we, we need to qualify. There's okay. still a lot of stuff to work through. But we are moving in the right direction, George. It is getting much, much better. And I think that uh, has to be welcomed. Now, uh, Jim Parr, um, I, I, you know, the O'Leary fellow down at Good Bodies might want to telephone me, but I was very angry when I heard this this morning, right? Because um, he, this is this is classic economic activity. This is boom and bust. And you you look at it, and we, he says we'll have to get immigrants in to take on the jobs that the Irish won't do. 
we have seen the difficulty that uh, when Bertie Ahern opened the door and there were only three countries in Europe opened the door to immigration, Sweden, Britain and ourselves. We saw difficulty that caused us. The housing issue which you've attested to, how can you possibly talk about uh, an economic uh, situation as positive when you have the housing situation we have? I said, George, that a number of the economic metrics are moving in the right direction. You know, the economy is going to grow in, but in excess of 4.5% this year. And if you go across the country and the economy, you will find that most people are saying that things are definitely getting better over the last couple of years. There has been a significant lift. If you look at tourism activity around the country, for example, you know, it is giving regional economic activity a bit of a boost. There's still a distance to go. But... You know, the point I'm making is that despite all of those positive growth metrics, there's still a lot of challenges we need to work through, and they are the legacy of that crash. I know, and hold it's on. It's take some years. All right. but Brexit, you, sorry, Jim, yeah? Jim. Brexit is not a legacy issue. And how you can possibly forecast, uh, not you, I mean, how one can possibly forecast with, with certainty growth figures like 4% when we have no idea what the effect of Brexit will be. However, we do know that Brexit is going to have an effect on the Irish economy. Is that not true? Okay, George, what I said there was the economy is expected to grow by in excess of 4.5% this year. And, you know, we're eight months into the year. And it's obvious that that is going to be the case. Uh, Next year and the year after will definitely be more problematical. You know, on the negative side, Brexit is obviously the big one because we have no idea how Brexit is actually going to unfold. And the more we see from the UK, the more we realise just how dysfunctional the whole Brexit process is from the UK perspective. So that does pose a massive challenge to Ireland over the next few years. There's no doubt about that. And I suppose the area uh, that stands out in that regard would be the agri-food sector, you know, the 37% of our food and drink exports that go to the UK. So that definitely is a massive challenge. On the plus side, um, it is important to recognise that um, the international economic environment is getting steadily better. Um, And I suppose most importantly, from an Irish perspective, the Eurozone economy in the second quarter grew at a rate of 2.1%. That's the strongest growth rate we've seen there in a number of years. Uh, The U.S. economy is doing okay. China has stabilized, is doing okay. So a a lot of our international trading partners are doing quite well. The one that stands out, of course, in a negative sense, is the U.K. Last week we saw the governor of the Bank of England downgrading his prospects for the U.K. economy over the next couple of years. And, George, one final point. go back to a point you made about inward migration and the problem it causes. Um, I am totally pro-migration. Um, I think the economic and business benefits of having migration cannot be overestimated. So, uh, I know, am absolutely opposed to the kind of uh, migration uh, we've seen into this country over the last 20 years. Uh, I'm not, I have to say. I think it's, it's been a major benefit socially and economically to Ireland. Um, do we want to go back to the days of your one of your heroes, De Valera, where we closed our borders. Hey, watch your language. <laughs> watch your language on this program. Um, but, you know, I... I oh, no, I, let's, tackle, let's tackle immigration up front. 
there, there is no doubt that the vast proportion of Chinese who came into Ireland over the last 20 years came in on visas that were granted by fake education schools on the basis they were going to learn English and they never turned up ever uh, to uh, a lecture and they worked and they paid five to ten thousand euro uh, for a fake uh, uh, study in in schools that, that well, well, were allowed well, issue visas. I, I have to say uh, the, Ch- the Chinese that I know make an incredibly positive. That isn't the question economy. I'm asking. Right, the second question, I'm, and, and the second bit is, I teach in the Smartford Business School in UCD. Okay, and a lot of my students are foreign. A lot are Chinese. They all turn up for lectures. They study hard. They work very you hard. You obviously weren't listening to me at all. <laughs> well, you know, there were, there were issues with, um, obviously, people coming in with fake visas on the language schools. Um, I think those issues are now being sorted out. I think um, th- there was a lot of bad stuff going on there. But generally, um, the whole contribution of the Chinese to the economy... We have no idea. Positive. We have no idea. How many illegal, we're talking this morning about illegal migrants in America being less than is estimated. I can guarantee you that the number of illegal migrants in Ireland is immeasurably greater than estimated and, and cowardly politicians won't say so, even though they will say so in private. What are the negative manifestations of that? You're in favour of illegal immigration. I'm not in favour, but I I don't see... I'm not in favour of anything illegal, but I just don't see it impacting our daily lives in any significant way. It's okay up in Leafy Turn, you're... But the point is that there are countless... There are countless people that uh, today are in economic slavery because they are illegal and employers are paying them less money and giving them worse conditions because they know they're illegal. And that, Jim, illegal emigration, whether in the USA and Ireland, has the same negative effects. And not to be, not to be opposed to it is wrong. Of course I'm opposed to it. I said I'm opposed to anything that's illegal. But I, I don't see illegal immigrants having a negative impact on our daily lives. I mean, the fact that illegal immigrants are being socially and economically abused, um, that says more for Irish employers and Irish people than it does for the illegal immigrants themselves. But obviously, every country has got to okay. try and clamp down on illegal immigration. It, you know, it's, 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 it's bad... It's it's very bad for the okay. people themselves involved. So it needs to be sorted. But right. I just don't see... It's not something that keeps me awake at night, I have All to right. say. Well, I gave you something that will keep you awake at night because you brought it up. You brought up the fact that the Governor of the Bank of England has downgraded uh, the, the uh, his economic forecast. This morning, the self-same governor of the Bank of England said, although he does not expect another crash uh, of the magnitude of the last one, he is deeply worried about the growth in personal debt in the United Kingdom. Surely you could say precisely the same thing about Ireland because of the housing situation. And who's warning us? Uh, I did say, George, earlier on that one of the legacy issues we have here is the level of personal debt. Um, and the good news is that 
the level of personal debt is actually diminishing here. It's still too, way too big, but it is diminishing. It is going in the opposite direction in the UK, and the likely economic outlook for the UK over the next two or three years would suggest that it is going to get worse. But Ireland at the moment is moving in the opposite direction. Uh, debt is still a problem. It is starting to come down. And the hope would be, and we can only hope, George, because anybody who believes you can forecast the future with certainty is mad. Um, I think that's one thing we should have all learned. Well, I've certainly learned it over the last decade. But the, the, the point is that if we get reasonable growth, if we continue to see employment growing, if we start to see a pickup in wage growth, you will gradually see you know, personal finances improving. The one big caveat to all of that is the one you highlight there, and that is housing debt and the, the level of mortgage that people will be forced to take on over the next few years if the housing crisis isn't sorted very, very quickly. Headline, Jim, headline, today's Irish Independent. Uh, people are now uh, forced into one third of their income is goes towards mortgage repayment. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that, that's a massive issue. And there's only one way of addressing that issue, and that is to address the supply-side problem in housing, build more houses. Um, in one of the papers today, I'm not sure which one, uh, there was a piece about um, a Cork developer, Michael O'Flynn, you know, who's talking about the positive impact that changes to planning regulations are having on his ability to deliver housing in near Glanmire in Cork, for example. So the stuff starting to happen um, but a lot more needs to happen to get housing supply up because the only way you can stop this incessant okay. growth in people's right. is it, it, by it, okay. getting house prices back down through supply. Try this one, Dan. The last time we had uh, changes to planning regulations, we were, give, we were given apartment blocks that were fire traps. Why do we believe that changing re serious regulation in planning is the only way that you can build houses? Well, they're fast-tracking the planning process. They're, they're, one, one would hope that local authorities have learned enough not to take shortcuts in terms of safety. But in terms of getting the planning process through the system, um, it is being expedited, it is being speeded up, um, and, and, and that is good news. And, you know, Michael O'Flynn is suggesting it is certainly benefiting his ability to deliver houses. Obviously, we need to make sure that the correct types of houses uh, standard-wise, quality-wise, etc., are actually delivered. Uh, but that, that's a slightly different issue. But the, the planning process here is just a massive uh, logjam in the whole system. It needs to be expedited. Um, we just need to remove all of those obstacles to delivering housing supply. I think there's no doubt whatsoever right. about that. Well, now, when you were in short pants and you went into your first economics lecture, didn't somebody tell you that it was a fundamental of economic activity that bust followed boom? Absolutely. And I, I have a, a, a shelf of books here on boom and bust all over the world. Um, and absolutely. So what we need to ensure in this country that we're, we're not in a boom period at the moment, you know, to suggest we are um, is, I think, extremely naive. The economy is starting to grow quite strongly. Uh, there's still a long way to go to get back to where we were in, in a real sense. Um, but we're, we're definitely not in a sort of a boom situation at the moment. But we need to control it. You know, all, all the things we need to make sure that the whole cost of doing business 
are controlled, that inflation is controlled, that house prices are brought back down, um, that the public finances are managed prudently and so on. All right, so, but Jim, sorry, sorry, yes. you don't believe a word of that. You, you, you think it's a really good idea, and it is. And if all those things happened, uh, it'd be great. But you know in your heart and soul, they won't. Yeah, but, but I still, just because... Uh, we mightn't believe they'll happen. We still have to keep talking about them because, you know, Bertie Hearn, I think, famously said um, after the collapse in the economy and so on that nobody told him. Um, from 2000 onwards, the National Competitiveness Council, which is part of Forfoss and Enterprise Ireland, they alluded every year in their cost of doing business survey in Ireland, or their national competitiveness survey, that our competitiveness was deteriorating, deteriorating, and up to 2007, 2008, where it reached a totally unsustainable situation. Unfortunately, nobody heeded the warnings of the National Competitiveness Council. And indeed, the most recent publication from the National Competitiveness Council, you know, is suggesting that these are all the areas we need to continue to monitor. Uh, but it's up the up to the political system to do it. But I suppose, like yourself, I'd be pretty cynical about the ability of the political system to do the right thing. But we, we can only hope, and, and we've got to continue to beat the drum in this regard, because the only way you can prevent a boom from turning into a bust is to prevent the boom in the first place. And that's sort of conservative economic management is what is required, in my view. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. I was economist Jim Power speaking about the report from God, Good Body Stockbrokers, uh, uh, Mr. O'Leary's report at Good Body Stockbrokers, Dermot, I think his name is, who suggested the last decade is over. Um, I just don't buy it. And I don't uh, buy uh, the whole unlimited immigration thing that Bertie Hearn uh, foisted upon us. Uh, and was look, it was foisted on the British, the Swedes and the Irish. We were the only three countries with an opportunity to say at that point, uh, we want uh, to take time out for the free movement of peoples. And three countries did it. It is interesting that Sweden has major social issues, which uh, Swedish politicians have spoken about on this very program, that the whole issue behind Brexit is predicated by freedom of movement, and we are still heads in the sand. Could have the answer for you next. Let's move to Leitrim. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com, with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, uh, pilotless cars are already uh, de facto, if not de jure, because, of course, the technology is there. And now the suggestion is, of course, they can do precisely the same thing with aeroplanes. Well, uh, would you fly one, though, on one? That's the key question. I'm joined by um, aviation analyst and himself a reporter for LBC, Alex Mancheras. Alex, welcome to the program. Hello, George. How are you? Yeah, well, would you go on one? Um, frankly speaking, no. <laughs> definitely, definitely not yet. Yeah, as you and me. But hold a minute here, though. I mean, there have been always pilotless planes in the sense a pilot could set it to automatic pilot and off it went. And in fact, 
the the tragedy of the golfer Payne Stewart, where they reckoned everybody was dead on board his private plane, but of course it kept flying because it was an automatic pilot. Exactly, and and it's with autopilot and with how planes are flown daily. Um, just to give you a quick summary, if you are flying, for example, from Dublin to southern Spain, let's say, well, on that flight, the actual manual hands-on flying that is done, so where the two flight crew, the two pilots are manually flying the aircraft, for the entire flight, it's about six minutes, usually three minutes at the start and three minutes at the end. And everything else is on autopilot, and the flight crew are telling the aircraft what to do by making electronic adjustments to the aircraft. Now, Michael O'Leary is never short of a bit of a word. He reckons that they should immediately cut to the chase and just have one pilot rather than two, because the second fellow really doesn't do anything. Yeah, so this is a little bit of an insult to anyone who is a first officer, a co-pilot, or, you know, because, of course, they are just as qualified, but Michael O'Leary, ever as outspoken as he is, he says that there is no need, that we're on this direction, we're on this straightforward line now towards automation, and the next step will be just one pilot in the flight deck, because, of course, he says that the other one is just there, just in case something goes wrong. Now, it's not entirely true, but a little bit of what he says is is fact. Yeah, but Alex, um, I don't know whether you're interested in the World Athletics Championships taking place uh, in London at the moment, but uh, we are, because our 400-meter hurdler uh, couldn't run in the semi-final, and a number of other athletes couldn't compete because of an outbreak of food poisoning or gas gastroenteritis or whatever at the hotel they were staying in. Now, what happens if Pilot has a dodgy bottle of Guinness the night before and he suddenly gets sick on the plane? I mean, currently, what happens? Exactly. They well, all get sick. A... I mean, they all get sick. Yeah, of course. It's just like that. Pilots, at the end of the day, are human beings. But um, these situations are always thought about and considered, and that's why... When there are two flight crew members, two pilots in the cockpit, each of them will eat different things on the flight. Just in case, if you're serving the same meal to both of your pilots and it's got this same bug in both of the meals, well, then you've essentially just made your only two pilots on board the aircraft unwell. And that can lead to a difficult situation. So it is why currently at the moment, pilots will always eat different things from each other in the cockpit. On long-haul flights, there can be as many as four flight crew members, four pilots in the flight deck. So um, it's definitely, you know, it's something needed and we're not ready for this tomorrow. But is this the direction that we are generally heading? It is. But the thing is, technology is already there pretty well. But And that's why, you know, the, the pilot at the beginning of a transatlantic flight says to you, it's going to take five hours and ten minutes because the computer's telling him that. Um, now, on the other hand... Um, the, the the pilotless airlines would have a huge competitive advantage because the, their staffing costs would be dramatically reduced. Exactly. One of the largest overheads for any airline are the salaries, and more specifically the salaries of the flight crew. So, of course, while there are wider costs, the cost of oil, the cost of fuel, uh, and the cost of maintenance of the aircraft and the lease and everything, Actually, salaries does, does contribute a lot to the overhead. So, of course, airlines are all about 
you know, being more efficient. And it would be the envy of every other airline to have a very successful, fully automated fleet of aircraft where passengers were trusting enough to fly. But ultimately, like you said, although the technology is there, the trust from the public really isn't. And although it's a quite a lighthearted topic, on a more serious note, we had a crash not too long ago in Europe, the, Luft, the uh, Lufthansa airline German wings. It was this suicide where the captain left the flight deck to go to the bathroom and the co-pilot locked him out and deliberately crashed the aircraft. And for that reason, we would always have two or more currently just to mitigate any risk yeah. such as this. But there is another issue. You've, neg- you've raised a negative issue of where the pilot uh, kills himself and all the passengers. But then you have the positive story of, of uh, I think it was American Airlines, you, you'll confirm, on the Hudson, that famous landing on, on the Hudson River in New York, when there was a major problem with the, with, with the, uh, with the plane and the pilot brilliantly brought it to, to earth without any any losses. Now, it is moot, I presume, Alex, whether um, a pilotless plane might do that. Exactly. So what you're referring to is the U.S. Airways A320 that Captain Sully very famously landed safely and amazingly on the Hudson River on a freezing day in New York. And, yeah, the investigation concluded that actually – this probably couldn't have been achieved and definitely not the exact same outcome had Captain Sully not have been in the flight deck on that very day. It was his quick decisions and his cooperation with his co-pilot. So let's be clear, the first officer didn't just sit there and watch. He was actively involved in ensuring that this tragedy was avoided. And it was one of the greatest kind of examples of aviation history, purely down to the manual control of a human being. But however, though, Alex, um, if we take British Airways, if British Airways bring in pilotless aeroplanes, we'd all be terrified, given that their baggage computers fall down, their uh, checking computers <laughs> fall down. I, I mean, if I can't trust a baggage computer and their checking computer, why should I check their aeroplane computer? I, I absolutely agree with you. It's not something that is uh, that is put too much spotlight on here in England because they like to be proud of the national carrier. But, uh, of course, if British Airways, for example, can't even print me my boarding pass, then I'm not allowing them to fly me on that so-called <laughs> IT system. Well, what about this, though? I mean, if you look at the growth of Ryanair from its earliest days, which I clearly remember, it, it was predicated on a no-frills service, but it was immeasurably cheaper than the, the major competitor, Aer Lingus, out of Dublin, right? So the cost of a flight from Dublin to, to London, which in, in the Monopoly days was in excess of £200, suddenly it came down to £20. If the alternative for you was to go London-Paris for £200 with a pilot or 20 quid without a pilot, it's going to be a lot of people that want it will take 20 quid option. There are, and, and history has proved that with every kind of risky decision where we rely on automation, ultimately the only factor that a person is considering when they're choosing who to fly with is the price. So once this technology is certified by all of the relevant safety authorities for aviation worldwide, then of course, you know, if the FAA, for example, the Federal Aviation Administration, if they say it's safe and they're selling a seat for £20, 
there are going to be a lot of people who say yes. And I ran a quick Twitter poll from yesterday on my Twitter, and it says that 25% out of a total of 100%, 25% said that they would be more than happy to fly on an aircraft with no flight crew whatsoever. And that was surprising to me. I thought that was quite a high percentage. Well, I just I've just done a, a random poll of my family, my three children, okay. um, who said they wouldn't go in a car piloted by their father. So they are they, but they're happy to go on an airplane without a pilot. They think an airplane without a pilot is safer than being in a car with their father. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's sensible because. Air travel is the safest form of transport, and uh, and at least we know for Ryanair when they when they eventually get this fleet of automated airliners, they've got three customers waiting to fly. All right, thank you, Alex. Uh, Alex Mancheras, aviation analyst and reporter for LBC uh, Radio in London. We'll have Michael Graham uh, after uh, one o'clock talking migrants, and we'll have Barry Kenny talking sardines. Dinia. And somebody says, why, do, why doesn't the pilot double up um, as a stewardess and serve drink, given um, that he or she has nothing to do? And uh, this is a dangerous direction, George, says another. You need to watch a few episodes of the air crash investigation. Uh, it, uh, the lovely Ingrid commandeers the telly to watch air crash investigation uh, not me, I'm afraid. I'm outside. My latest thing is Outlander. Have you seen that? His game goes back to the Middle Ages in Scotland. Great stuff. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Time now to go to Boston, Massachusetts, where uh, Michael Graham, of course, is an illegal uh, immigrant, having moved there uh, from Washington, D.C. and crossed the border. Uh, Michael Graham, welcome to the program. I want to be perfectly clear. I was illegal as soon as I crossed the Mason-Dixon line from down south and came here <laughs> to the uh, to the north. I'm behind you know enemy lines surrounded by Irish illegal immigrants who, by the way, are likely to benefit from Donald Trump's uh, and the uh, other and the other Republicans' proposal for immigration. Irish immigrants are likely to benefit. So I assume that, of course, makes him evil because he's doing something that would uh, benefit the Irish. I Is think right? it, well, he's going to benefit the Irish, the English, the Australians, and the Canadians, and anybody else who can speak English. And um, the Indians, and the Pakistanis, and the approximately 50 million people in China who speak English, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but it, it definitely... The no, Irish but that's not gonna, what he means. He means speaking English is a code word for English and white. Oh, see, I didn't. We didn't get the code word manual. We just have laws here in the United States. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you guys are familiar with those, <laughs> and so it just has laws. But I, seriously, the argument being made here in the United States is it is bad to benefit the Irish. If it benefited the Syrians, it would be good. If it benefited right. the Saudis, it would be good. No. If it benefited the uh, uh, people of you know Vietnam, it would be good. And so I'm just curious if you agree that doing something 
that ancillarily benefits the Irish makes you a bad person. All right. I'm not sure, but I do know not, Answer the question. Okay, good. All Notice, right. ladies and gentlemen of News Talk, George Hook has dodged the question. Yeah, so dodged the bullet. Yeah. There's a, because I want to get to the key point. We've a fellow called John D.C. over here, who I, I right. suspect is, he failed arithmetic in his <laughs> SATs, his, his school exams. Right. Because he thinks that there are only about 10,000 Irish illegals in in America. I would suggest there are 10,000 Irish illegals in South Boston, which is down the road from your house. Yes, I would agree so too. And if, and having spent many a Saturday night in Southie, it seemed like there were 10,000 crowding around my bar. So I think you're right. But it's, isn't it interesting? Because when President Obama was in office and the push was for amnesty, the talk was, oh, there's 50,000 illegals from Ireland and there's 20 million from Mexico. There's no reason to even try to enforce the law. Just give up and let everybody stay. Now that people are actually being deported, now that the law is being enforced, now that the flood from Central America has ended is down to a trickle. Suddenly, it's oh, there's only ten thousand people from. They're not worth deporting. Let's uh, just forget about it. It's isn't it fascinating how the math changes as the politics well, changes? Well, yes, George. exactly. But uh, there is some fellow called Jeffrey Presser, and he believes that without any, he did a kind of survey. Now, I don't know how you can count the number of illegals because they're hardly likely to say yes. Put me down there. Take <laughs> take. The illegal box. He said, right. no, but I'm serious. I mean, you don't know how many Mexicans are illegal in Houston, Texas, let That's alone right. America. So uh, what makes the Irish any different from the Mexicans, the illegal ones, that is? I agree with you at every level. It's hard to track. This is all estimates. And also, I agree with you that the law should be applied equally. And if you're here from China and you came here to have a baby so that it could have American citizenship to protect your assets from the Chinese government and you're here illegally, you should be deported. If you're here from Central America, if you're here from Cork, it should. it's, okay. it's very simple. We're a country. We have laws. We enforce them. And the fact that that is controversial explains why Democrats have so much trouble winning elections in the United States. Now, Pat Kenny, my good friend Pat Kenny, who delivers real fact-based broadcasting <laughs> uh, between 9 and noon every morning, he said that they are now deporting illegals from the so-called sanctuary cities. Is this true, and what's it mean? Okay, so it's very complicated. What the sanctuary city or state means is that the local officials there have announced that they refuse to obey the law – and they refused to help the federal government enforce its law. It would be as if you were wanted by you know, the feds because you broke into Fort Knox. But if you can get your money to Somerville, Massachusetts, one of the sanctuary cities, the local cops will know where you are and let you stay there. That's how crazy this is. But the federal government always has the power – to uh, you know, to detain you and deport you because you're breaking federal law, no matter where you are. Normally, what would happen in a sane country is that you have a guy standing. You know, let, let me do total stereotypes, okay? Seamus O'Malley is standing in front of the judge, you know, in Boston for DUI, and they get it. They they do his ID and they figure out that he's here illegally. A note goes to the immigration authorities in Washington. They send a note back. Hey, hang on to him. It's going to take us 48 hours to get our ducks in a row. And you know, take him into custody. And he would sit in the local jug, Huskow, Gold, Jail, whatever, and the, the feds would pick him up. 
What happens now is Boston busts this guy. He's here illegally. They charge him for the ticket for DUI, whatever, and they let him go, and they won't tell anybody. And when ICE finds out he's here, they say, screw you. We're gonna, in fact, we've had judges who've lowered the penalties on criminals because they were illegal immigrants, and they didn't want them to get deported. And so guys who committed felonies were allowed to walk on felonies because the sanctuary judge didn't want them to get deported. But it's changing or not. Well, I'm what's happening is uh, all of these cities get federal grants for law enforcement. So the Trump administration has announced, hey, for just to, I happen to know about Somerville, Mass., one of the suburbs of Boston. Hey, you've gotten about $4 million from us over the past 10 years. You're going to start getting zero from us for these federal grants. And so you can eat the $4 million. And there are liberal, wealthy communities who say, fine, we'll, we'll live without it. But there are plenty of other communities that that's money that they then have to take from their school budget or their senior budget and they are so f afraid of the militant progressive loony left in the United States that they are willing to lose that money rather than uh, simply say to the feds there's an illegal immigrant who's here yeah we'll hang on to him for you okay one of the things and and I mean I mean this in the best possible way you're you're not an expert on Irish immigration but again not at when, all. no no but when I was talking to the the, the particularly well qualified Pat Kenny on his show this morning I mean he made the obvious point we've had uh, serious illegal migration to America for the best part of four decades, I would have said. Now, mm -hmm. it is incomprehensible that if you've had people going to America on student or holiday visas and never returning, right. that somebody would suggest there's only 10,000 of them exactly. after four decades. I mean, it's just exactly. incomprehensible. Yeah, it is. Now, there is one other thing that uh, pro-amnesty people point to, which is that a lot of these people have been given either straight up amnesty because we had one of those uh, you know, a couple decades ago or have been given some conditional amnesty. In other words, because President Obama uh, basically broke the law as president and created ways for people to stay here that are not laws – um, that they've got ways, you know, that there's that they've got some legal protection because the president did those, you know, unilaterally. The new president can undo them unilaterally, and he may. So maybe they're using those numbers to scam around. But George, you know what this is? This is pure politics, and I want to say this on the record because I know when I talk about how we treat illegal immigrants, the people of Ireland think I sound crazy because no country would do what America does. If these illegals from Ireland or Mexico or Asia voted 90% Republican, Democrats would be standing at the border with machetes to fight them off to keep them from coming in. But because they vote overwhelmingly Democrat, because they come from socialist-leaning countries, the, the, this is all about creating voters. It has nothing to do with social okay. justice, blah, blah, blah. Now, mentioning uh, our mutual friend, President Obama, we both have the same opinion on his presidency. But mm -hmm. news from Nevada just in is that a major uh, health insurance company has pulled out of Obamacare in Nevada. Now, there, there appear to be two conflicting reasons for this. One is that uh, Obamacare doesn't work for the insurance company because to have to keep up in the premium and so on, mm -hmm. or uh, the the other view is that uh, President Trump is scaring all the insurance companies and they don't want to be involved. I mean, which is it? 
Well, it's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, the the way that Obamacare was shoved through was with promises of unending amounts of money that would be dumped into big insurance companies with a massive bailout. They they it's basically uh, the Obama administration and and the Democrats did for ha- uh, uh, health insurance. What uh, previous administrations had done for the housing market. Remember, we had that huge housing bubble, George, because the lenders were told, look, lend money to a guy who makes $12 a year, no matter how much it is, and we'll back it up with federal, you know, with, with federal funds. And so everybody got loans, and then they all defaulted on their loans, and then the taxpayers were on the hook, and we had a massive, massive bailout. So we did the same thing. There was no way that this plan was ever going to make economic sense. It wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to cost more. More and more tax money until finally the American people said, OK, fine, we'll take crappy single payer because we can't afford this disaster. Well, uh, when Obama went to Congress and said, you guys have to pay all these insurance companies, these big bailouts, Congress pointed out, dude, you didn't put that in the law. You never got this passed by the legislature. They went to court and the judge ruled against Obama. He said, you're absolutely right. So now what Democrats are doing is begging to the president, please, please, please break the law and give more money to these big insurance companies who wanted this scam deal, please. And he's saying, I don't think so. And so we'll find out if this uh, subsidy, uh, uh, this illegal subsidy of the insurance companies right. continues. Although I do have a text from Brian Nantlone who says, I bet you Michael couldn't give one genuine example of an illegal who had his felony charge reduced in order to protect uh, him from being picked up. I, w- I will say this. My Twitter handle is I am M. Graham. I am Michael Graham. Follow me on Twitter, and I guarantee you that before 2 o'clock Dublin time, I will have the link to the article about those incidents for you to peruse. Happy to do it. And by the way, anytime anyone on News Talk hears something that you think is – what's the nice word for it in Ireland, George? Fake uh, news, you mean? Fake <laughs> – fertilizer, whatever. Bull, <laughs> bull, bull ex- excrement. You contact Horse me manure. Horse manure. Horse manure, yes. And I will happily give you my source. My source may be wrong. You may disagree with my analysis, but it's always source. Now, George, can I please explain math to the people of Ireland very quickly? Oh, please do. We're bad at maths. When you have 10 houses and 20 people who want to buy houses, the price of houses goes up. When you have 10 houses, 20 buyers, and you don't let somebody build 10 more houses, the price still goes up. When you have 10 houses and 20 buyers and you order the people who own the 10 houses, you can't charge what they're worth. You can only charge half what they're worth. Nobody builds the other 10 houses. That's how housing works. By the way, that's also how restaurants work and clothes work and everything else on planet Earth works. Now, I know that there are, there are progressives in Ireland, socialists in Ireland, who think that you guys can use the legislature, the doll, to repeal math. But alas, you cannot. Well, the housing situation is a... Is a disaster, and uh, I mean, no, it's not. You're absolutely wrong, George. I'm sorry, I disagree. The housing situation is not a disaster. Ireland is full of smart, hardworking people who want to build housing and make money off of it. The problem isn't the housing. The problem is the government. That's the problem. Dumb, stupid, greedy people who won't let you build because a it'll annoy somebody who votes for them, or b you haven't given them enough of the yeah, of a know, cut no, of the housing. Yeah, no, but if you Bertie had Ahern to, no. could get this problem solved, George, I pro- Bertie and his <laughs> wide open pockets sitting at the bar could crank through enough housing deals to cover all your problems. No, but if you had your way, like you build houses in the Grand Canyon, or <laughs> you know the, the something 
Park, whatever it's called. That's right. That's that's a problem in Ireland. There's no place to build houses other than your precious national parks and treasures. There's no open space in Ireland. There's not. We're just. What can we possibly do? You're right, George. That's it. Well, I was away for the weekend because it's a holiday weekend over here and I was away for the weekend. And when I came back, they're thinking of charging me tax for leaving my house <laughs> homeless for three days. Um, what do you think of the empty house tax? I just want to make, so make sure I understand this. So somebody buys like a little vacation cottage. They save up their whole life. And now they're 50 years old. The cottage is there. They're going on the weekends until they retire. And now they're going to get taxed in addition to the property tax that they already pay, in addition to the income tax they already pay, and the VAT tax, they're going to pay the you don't actually live here tax, shame on you tax. Is that, that's the plan. Yeah, except I okay. don't think he'll get away. That, no, hold on. I don't think he'll get away with your sob story of, you know, George Old and Gray and Ingrid with their little cottage. I think that they won't get that one passed. But if George uh, decides that he wants to keep his house empty until his son is of age, um, right. in a few years' time or whatever, then they're going to tax me on that. They're going to say, or, you've left the house if, empty, or else you you got to sell it or you got to rent exactly. it. Or you're a person who says, hmm, I think the homes in that neighborhood are going to be worth a lot more money Correct. in a few years. You're not allowed so to do that. To, that's, so called, buy, that's called profit, Michael. Exactly. So you're I'm going to buy them now while they're less expensive. I'm going to spend some money maintaining them just to keep them in the shape. And then yeah. in a few years, I'm going to no. brightly paint them. I'm going to hire a bunch of workers, put them to work to create homes and maximize the value. You can't And you'll do be that. taxed for not being stupid. You can't you do sh- that. You're gonna, so you're going to so tax people for being smart. Well, you're going to tax people for being motivated by profit. Exactly, for being smart, for yeah, maximizing profit, the value. Profit, exactly. profit increasingly, when you're ruled by people with left-wing views, profit is the 11th okay. co- uh, commandment right. that you so, break. So then you sell the, the property at a lower price than it's worth. You m- minimize the tax revenue. Or you that. rent you sell it, to yeah. somebody. You sell to somebody or rent to somebody who's you know doesn't have the money to invest into it, and so the value of the property goes down rather than up because of the wear and tear over time, and then you end up with a net you know less valuable home, and also all those workers who would have been hired in two or three years to maximize the value of the home when the time came, they'll be sitting in their rent subsidized right. home somewhere okay. not working. Now the minister for housing, Owen Murphy, is very smart cookie. Um, he has delayed this taxation strategy because it was not ambitious enough. So what he means, obviously, you know, not enough tax or not draconian enough, or maybe gray-haired George and his dear wife who've saved up all their life for their little cottage by the sea, maybe he wants to take that as well. Let me ask you this, and also I'm asking this seriously as a thought experiment. What's the actual difference between saying to uh, George, George, you have a house that's empty right now for whatever reason, and it could be used to maximize, quote, social good and put people in it, so we're going to tax you. What's the difference between that between that and, George, you have a house with four bedrooms, but it's just you and Ingram. You must rent out your bedrooms or we're going to tax you for those empty bedrooms. 
Well, what is the actual difference? They're heading in that direction because there is, they use words. Um, it's really interesting. Like they call me an empty nester, right? So, so they don't call me like George and Ingrid, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They, no, they, they call me an empty nester. So now people look at George and Ingrid and say, selfish George and Ingrid. Why are they living in four bedrooms when they could give it to me? and my four kids so it's a very it's a very very um smart sort of psychological pressure that older people where they've lived all their lives all their lives that they should move george what is income tax like in ireland what's the ballpark figure 52 percent what yeah are you serious of course I'm serious. Holy crap. How about would you will it would you be willing to take this deal? We will cut the income tax to a maximum of 10%, but we'll raise property taxes on everybody to pressure them to maximize the value of their property. They won't you won't be able to afford to leave a house empty because the property taxes will be so high, but you'll have all your income tax so you'll, your income will be virtually untaxed. Would you take that deal? Well, that deal isn't going to happen because we have now increasing property taxes and 52% exactly. income tax. So we're you. screwed no matter where we <laughs> exactly. go. My point is that if there really is an effort to use tax policy to get people to maximize the economic value of their property, then the, then the thing to do would be to raise everybody's property yeah, tax, correct. and that will yeah. put pressure on them. And if you swapped it out by getting rid of the income tax, you could actually do two smart things at the same time uh, but of course that's smart so it won't happen all right i'm thinking of becoming an illegal immigrant in south boston michael graham from boston massachusetts will be with us at this time next week barry kenny meanwhile will take us to sardinia in about 10 minutes or so high noon with george hook thanks to claytonhotels.com with 17 hotels across ireland and the uk all right, uh, time now uh, for my favorite piece of a Tuesday. It is, of course, Tuesday travel with that inveterate uh, traveler, Barry Kenny. Um, of course, communications officer with Irish Rail. If you want to travel anywhere in Ireland, you can whiz around. And, of course, they don't use – you don't use steam anymore now. No, but the RPSI, the Railway Preservation Society of Ireland, I think they're having their busiest summer ever, actually. If you want to go to – I think it's steamtrainsireland.com or .ie. I was going to say that because yeah. when you watch cowboy movies and stuff in America, they must have yes. preserved railways Absolutely. that they use. And I mean, right, I mean, it's a huge part of railway tourism now, which I think is why they're having such a, a busy season this year. There's just the demand for the services just seems to be never ending. But, uh, but you ripped up all track. No, <laughs> well, personally, no, whatever. But our, our predecessors, um, at some stage or other, because I, I am certain that when you said that you can get anywhere in Ireland, the first people who will be messaging you, George, the Donegal people, who they will, are, of course, are yeah. never ever shy about yeah. reminding Lord people, Beeching, I think it was Toronto Lord Ball Beeching tracks. in the in Britain, and Todd Andrews is who is blamed around these parts. All right. Yeah. Anyway, I want to go to Sardinia mm. now. I don't know where Sardinia is. Right. So where is it? It's a long way up from Sicily, but a short way down from Corsica. So it really borders France and uh, out I in still the middle. I don't know where it is. Right. Okay. Work west from Rome. The kind of Rome Naples area. Work west. It's sitting there, plunk in the middle of the Med. 
right. just to the, there's two big islands beside each other Corsica to the north which is French uh, strikingly independent island and one which we must cover another time and Sardinia uh, to the south we were a couple of months ago we did Sicily uh, uh, on this slot and they're similar in size Sardinia probably a little bit smaller but totally different in character. Far less populated island, Sardinia. Very agricultural still, particularly in its interior. You will just kind of go miles and miles without seeing major development. All my knowledge of Italy, really, strangely enough, now it doesn't come from Catholicism, but from World War Two. So if it wasn't fought over, (laughs) I don't know where it is. Sardinia was fought over a lot over the years. And in fact, part of it being distinctive is the fact that it still to this day bears a lot of Catalan influence, particularly in the northwest. Yeah, Yeah, Alguero, uh, which is where you're most likely start your trip to Sardinia. I should say, people who have been there before, there was a Ryanair direct flight. It's no longer in operation. No longer? No, they had a row with the authorities in Sardinia, pulled most of their flights out. But Sunway, uh, the travel agency, are running charters through the summer season. They're charters, but you can also get the flight only. This weekend, 289 return. Uh, Flight only. Flight only, but I think you get your bag and your taxes with that. So it's not a bad deal. And if you're looking at September for package deals in the 500s or 600s for the week per person. So again, I think... Now, is Algeria the... Algero is where you're starting. It's the, I mean, Cagliari is the is the biggest city, but Algero is where you're starting. And to my mind, it it combines a fishing port, a bustling town of business with tourism in a very effortless way, and one that is very easy in its own skin. So it's not dominated by tourism. So it gets a nice feel and pace to it, a nice authenticity uh, to it. And as I say. The Catalans were here. And to this day, you'll see street names displayed in both Catalan and Italian language. So you can figure you have some linguistic confusion if you see Carrera and Placa instead of Via and Piazza around. But as I say, the town and the resort area, nice, gentle, moderate, walkable pace. It's one of these old town centres that's dominated by walls and seven towers. And you can walk right around the outside Is of this that. because of the Greeks and the Romans or this, something? So there's, there's everyone, as I say. You're going back as far as the <laughs> Phoenicians here in this particular <laughs> yeah. instance. But uh, you are actually talking about this is something that was built, developed, protected by the Catalans. And they had these fortresses along the wall. So that entirely encapsulates the old town but you've got a beautiful walkway directly outside of that so either as an introduction or if you want to escape the bustle of the town itself a lovely walk where you can see the anglers cast out to sea you can see the lovers stroll and plenty of bars and cafes is it a big island? Uh, it's, yeah, as I say, kind of in terms of uh, Sicily, probably about suppose, 20% smaller uh, than Sicily right, so okay. it's a reasonable sized um, island as I say, Alguero, then you've got that old town, kind of Warren of Carfrey Street, 16th century Catalan Gothic architecture. And that's where you'll be doing your dining and your drinking. And you are going to come across the most gorgeous seafood because it really? is all oh, absolutely because fishing is still so popular and fishing is still such a main industry on the island. Uh, that's what's going to dominate the menus, fresh fish, lobster and indeed paella again bearing that uh, influence from Spain so now the only problem with paella mm. you're an expert presumably because I like paella expert. I would not yeah. consider myself no no expert. you're an expert in everything okay. 
the problem, well, we, we market you as mm-hmm. such. Yes, okay, <laughs> yes. The problem with paella, there's always the things in shells. Yes, yeah. Well, the, the, the proper uh, paella. Well, and that's why I don't like it. Really? Yeah. Now, you can get all these kind of chicken-based paellas yeah, and all of these kind of me. fake No uh, muscles. Right, okay, no well, muscles. you will be disappointed here. Okay. Whatever. I still maintain Spain is where you need to go for it, but you can go to the busy port itself, see your pleasure boat, see your ways out. Hold a minute You're here. pointing at me. Uh, well, I'm pointing at you because y- y- the people who are going to go mm. on a package holiday yeah. with Sunray, right, for yes. 500 quid for <laughs> sure. a week yeah. or 289 flights only, will want to beach. They will. They will. And so there's you tons have. of beaches? Yeah, and I mean, Algarve is only the start of it. This yeah. is an island with, I think, kind of per mile of coastline, probably the best beaches in all of Europe. They are spectacular. Some of them look like they've been plucked from the Seychelles and deposited in Europe. Those beautiful smooth rocks that you see, the crystal clear turquoise water. In Algier itself, short enough walk down the coast, probably about 20, 30 minutes is Lido to San Giovanni. That's the main town beach. A lot of development, a nice enough resort there. But you actually want to keep going beyond the woodlands. It's an eight kilometre cycle and walkway path right along the front there that will bring you to some Absolutely magnificent beaches. Hold a minute here. Just mm. one challenge. I'm mm. sure you're right, but I mean, sardines in the Mediterranean. Yes. Since when was the Mediterranean turquoise clear blue? That's, that's I thought that Mediterranean was one of the great dumping places <laughs> of the world. <laughs> well, I, again, when you're in this northern part of it in particular, uh, you've got the Straits of Bonifacio, which is facing across to Corsica. So if you go up the very north of the island, if you go up to Santa Teresa de Galura, if you go to uh, the Madalena Islands, it's just this calm, clear okay. water as, as, as far as the eye can see. La Pelosa. It's a, there's a little... Uh, but hold a while, like, yes. seriously, I mean, mm. it's a really serious question. Yeah. Here you are in the Med, right, yes. which is an inland sea in effect, effect right? Yes. Not tidal, mm. right? Yes. Green so far? Absolutely. Fairman dumping. And Kilkee loses its blue flag. Now, Kilkee's on the Atlantic. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because but, I know that was a local water issue. Yes. I know all that. Yes. And and they're not similar. But I'm astonished because I haven't been in uh, uh, the Mediterranean since Marina de Massa uh, okay. near Pisa right. uh, when I was still single. Okay. Well, that's, so that's how some distance ago. It really is very, very striking. It, it, and I mean, that's okay. why if you go to the northeast, if you go to Costa Smeralda, the Emerald Coast, this is an area that was colonised by the rich and famous in the late 50s onwards. Apparently the Aga Khan came along, uh, was yachting in the area. It, it's Sardinia. Yeah, and discovered this area, basically lay claim to it. Within a few years, you've got these, if you, if you want, and this, and this is where you want to go, George, is the Costa Smeralda in Sardinia. Because if you go up there, it is the sanitised, perfectly presented <laughs> Five stars. Five stars. The yachties yeah. are oh, crawling all over the place. Yeah. You know, well, no, now, no accidental exposure to local culture whatsoever. <laughs> perfect. Yes. Perfect. Now, the Aga Khan's interesting because mm. his son, yeah. Ali Khan, right. married uh, the great Rita Hayward, oh, right. the film okay. actress. Right. So that also could, at the 50s mm. and 60s, could have provided a sort of celebrity. Yes, exactly, pick. to draw people into yeah. the area. All right, sorry. Yeah. Now, I know you probably have an order with which you want to. <laughs> don't, George, every week it disappears. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Can I... How do you pronounce it? 
It sounds like Calgary in Canada. How do Calgary? Calgary. Calgary. And now this is the main city. What about? It's, I've read about this place. Well, Calgary. Firstly, if uh, for Calgary for me, it's the pilgrimage to Stadio Sant'Elia, where Ireland famously stuffed the English one all. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the phrase of the time. We stuffed them one one. You know, that was a, in a, Italian a ninety. Header. That's it? right. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, the Stadio Sant'Elia is closed and pending demolition. Um, the crowds fell, it became decrepit, no longer in use. But it was compared to Jerusalem uh, by D.H. Lawrence. Yes, in antiquity. D.H. Lawrence of of, uh, Dirty Book fame. Lady Chatterley's love. D.H. Lawrence. (laughs) Is that a Lawrence of Arabia? No, he's T.E. D.H. was Lady Chatterley. Well, he may have been inspired romantically by the majestic sunset views you'll get there from Bastione San Remy. And the range of, it is probably the best preserved medieval or kind of older centre that you will see in Sardinia. But you also got a range of museums if you're interested in archaeology, if you're interested in seeing those waves of invaders, waves of influences. Uh, you can go to the Museo Archaeologico there, but also there's an extraordinary museum um, waxworks, uh, Waxwork Museum, which is not the celebrities as we see commonly, but it was waxworks developed for anatomy students. Okay, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And effectively you have 24 varying stages of gruesome uh, anatomy waxworks uh, showing sections of various parts of the body and, and intricate and quite uh, dramatic now, uh, scenes. Is that the place you fly to? Would you fly to Algero? Oh, with, with Sunway. Okay. You can, if you, again, if, if, if it's out of season and Sunway aren't operating, Ryanair, through the likes of Stansted, through, some, uh, through the Charlois of this world, you can get to either Algaro oh, or Calgary that way. The, the thing we haven't discussed, it's just funny, I was looking um, at some of the temperatures in Europe at mm. the moment, and like the Algarve in Portugal is, is touching 40, yeah. apparently, right? Yeah. Uh, presumably you'd be better off not going in midsummer to Sardinia. Yeah, August would be would be cruel heat-wise, and that's just one of the reasons I'm talking about it this week, is it is a great late-season destination. So if you want to look at somewhere in September, if you haven't booked something already, um, it has that, I think, that accessibility. It's close. It ha- we have those flights that are operating. It's also a great place to hire a car, to spin around a little bit, uh, to get to see some of those different beaches. I mentioned briefly there La Pelosa, right? This is a very thin, Stintino, thin peninsula right up the northwest of the island. Um, you'll pass flamingos in the Saltpan lagoons uh, on one side. So again, this otherworldly sense that you're not in a European context beyond the town of Stintino. And then you're going to come to La Pelosa, which has blessed these clear turquoise waters. As far as you can see, incredibly popular and scenic. Um, offers excellent diving, of course, because of the clarity of the water as well. And you can get these um, controlled boat tours to some protected islands offshore. Uh, Asinara, uh, was a quarantine for cholera victims, okay, and a prison up to about 20 years ago. Uh, but because of that, it is still protected and you can take a little boat trip out of there. Now, Sardinia is Italy, mm. yeah? Yes. Um, so we're talking Euro. Yes. Uh, like, cost-wise, if you're going out to dinner or buying a yeah. drink or whatever, like in the con- great yeah. days of the lira, mm. it was different. There was. 2,000 lira, uh, yeah. an Irish pound, as I recall. Um, I thought it was quite moderately priced. It wasn't expensive unless you are going to that Costa Smeralda area. If that's the case, then, you know, I'll take, out the, off, take yeah. out the second mortgage. Um, it is extraordinary. But if you want to get, I suppose, a taste of 
what that is like without that expense. Uh, I go to Galura, to a place called Santa Teresa de Galura, um, an ideal resort, really gorgeous beaches around that area. Um, both the town itself, you can stay right on the Spiaggia Rena Bianca in the town, hotels right down to it, a, a gorgeous protected cove. Perfect, easy water to get into. Capo Tested in the west has these, as I say, Seychelles-like rock formations. But then there's a nice scene in this town as well. There's a nice selection of bars, piazzas. First place I ever saw. You know this drink you see everywhere at the moment? An Aperol Spritz. Who? The Aperol Spritz. It's Aperol. It's this Italian liqueur or whatever. Anyway, that's where I first saw it. And it seems to be ubiquitous these days around Dublin as well. And it's a great base for the Madeleine Islands, right? That's just a a 20-minute ferry ride away. And it's one of those places where you might be vaguely aware of it before you visit it, but it ends up just dominating your memory of it. The little town of La Madalena, nice little coffee-based scene, and then you travel no distance. You can have any private cove to yourself. Um, You can picture Nelson who used to lurk out in the waters um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the battles with the French. Uh, he, all, he wanted to take Sardinia for the English, Admiral Nelson. Uh, he reckoned that they had Sardinia, that they wouldn't need Malta, they wouldn't need anywhere else. Oh, yeah. This was the ideal spot. But then it's linked to another island called Caprera, and that's where Garibaldi lived out his days. So a lot of history here, as okay. say, both of the ancient type and the modern type. Well, the listener went there three years running. Mm-hmm. Stunning. Yeah. And then, of course, he can't go anymore because Ryanair can't sell. Yeah, and right? as I say, that sounds like one of those things that ultimately they will make up All with right. the air- airport authorities there and get going again. But but. The, you're going on all the time about the beaches. Mm. Now, a listener says one thing that drives him nuts about Spain mm. is the rubbish on the beaches. Right. I, I did not notice that at all. I did not notice that at all. Very clean. I think there is that ethos, and I mentioned a couple of places that are protected, of knowing what they have and doing what they can to protect it. If you're not into the beaches, there is inland uh, appeal as well. Inland Galura is a very stark landscape, again up the north, of granite, thick cork groves. Um, you can do a lot of trekking, not a high season activity. But again, if you like your food, the agriturismo. So I don't know if you've been to these in any part of, of Italy, George. These are kind of guest houses, kind of farmhouse type buildings, some which have been gentrified extraordinarily, which have restaurants attached with entirely locally produced fare. So but they're, they're stately homes like. They're, 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 they're started out as farmhouses, but a lot oh, of them have, right, been, have okay. been done up. So everything that you eat, everything that you're served, everything that you drink, the wine has all been produced within a very, very short distance of where you sit. Okay. And please, for the love of God, book into these places for a night because you do not want to be like me sitting down with the goddamn hire car parked out front <laughs> and next thing as part of the menu without even offering they put a jug a litre jug of wine down on the table and you can't you have to let Mrs. Kenny consume with relish and just sip on your one little now, glass uh, just a couple of random thoughts hmm. as always when I talk to you about places I've never been Corsica then yes wasn't Napoleon a Corsican was he? I think it was Elba's where he finished his days. Elba's where he finished his, his days, days, I think. Yeah, I yeah. thought he was a Corsican. Somebody you, might tell me. I always yield to you on these historical. No, somebody details. might tell yeah. me, 53106, where he came from. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, though, it, the people, you've hmm. kind of ignored the people. I, I think, I say, there's just this... They're not fawning over you. I didn't find it a particularly, you wouldn't say, well, this is a place we've got extraordinary service, but it was just relaxed. 
It was easy. But that's good. Though. It is. It is. It, it, it's not you're kind of I saying, like well, this that. is a show for the tourists, whatever. A lot of these places that I've mentioned that you're visiting, they're not dedicated tourist resorts. I mean, you do have them on Smeralda, you do have them on, on, on those areas north of Algero, and I'm sure we're somewhere going. But ultimately, you're on their set rather than the other way yeah. around. It, but it's interesting you've thought about that mm. you can go somewhere and have a cove, you know? Yeah, yeah. I went to the Algarve, believe this, right. in 1969, 50 yeah. years, 48 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, and you could find a cove like that. Yeah. Or you could find coves in the Algarve like that. And there was a little fish and chip man at the top of the hill. You yes. know, and yeah. that was it. Yeah. Exactly. And you go to the Algarve now and look at it. Well, as know? I say, if you go out to those islands of Madeleine, then you go down the east coast, right? And the east coast, a lot of the east coast is what's inland, actually. Uh, but they've got Cala Galone, which you have, or Ganone, you've got to get a boat to get there. That's how private those coves are. But I would recommend if you're going there, two places on the East Coast. Orgosolo, which is the bandit capital of Sardinia. <laughs> the home okay. of sheep rustling and blood vendettas. In the, fir- in the first half of the last century, this is a town of 4,000 people. There were six murders a year. That's uh, the, the type right. place that it it's was. It's okay now, is it? Pardon? It is okay. But then Dublin now is the, the murder <laughs> capital. <laughs> Alright, let's not have to kick out. Okay, no problem. Uh, next week, investor traveller Barry Kenny will be back. Uh, that's it for me. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.